Scaled Up Nation, we are professional water treaters, and we need to know what's in the water, and the tools we use to analyze that water needs to be of the top quality. One of the tools that we use are dip slides to determine planktonic bacteria and fungi counts. Fluid Maintenance Solutions provides affordable, reliable, and quality dip slides. Fluid Maintenance Solutions can private label your dip slides with your company logo. Don't leave an empty box behind with your customer. Leave them a branded reminder of you and your company. Order before August 31st and pay only $14.95 per box of 10 count dip slides. Give Fluid Maintenance Solutions a call today at 405-612-7869 or go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash dip slides. Fluid Maintenance Solutions, quality dip slides you can count on. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hello, Scale Up Nation. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up H2O. And folks, it's been a while since we've done this. This is one of my favorite types of shows to do. And what am I talking about? Well, it is where you call in your questions. I play those questions on the air, and then I answer those questions for you. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, if you're wondering how these people got on the Scaling Up H2O podcast, well, folks, that's simple. They just simply went to our webpage, scalinguph2o.com, and they looked for the pop-up on the right, and they saw send voicemail. They clicked on that. They used their computer or phone microphone to record their voice. And I got it, and we put it on the air. So if you want to do that, you can do the exact same thing. So we're going to be answering three questions from the audience today in this special Pinks and Blues from the audience episode. I have a customer that has boiler discharge, a cooling tower discharge, and an RO unit discharge going into the same drain. And there's no other drain within 500 feet. It clogs up the drain all the time. What are my options? Well, thank you for that question. And the first thing that comes to mind is mechanical issues versus water treatment issues. So I want you to think about that. The next time you have an issue, you know, when a carpenter has a hammer, everything seems like a nail. Well, we have water treatment wares, so it makes sense that we can fix every problem with our water treatment wares. Well, that's not always the case. I want you to think about that as we go through this question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer that question with three other questions. The first question is, is the drain clogged? Now, dirt and debris and sediment can settle and constrict the pipe size, making the drain not able to handle the water that's coming in. So you have to ask if that's an issue. Also, microbial fouling could be an issue. Uh, this is especially common if you have a condensate drain. So maybe your air conditioning system in your house or an ice maker they have low flow, uh, but they do have water flowing through them, and biologicals will set up camp in there, and they will just grow, and they will plug the drain. 
Now, what we've done is, uh, as a water treater, we've put some sort of biocide in that system, maybe a little capsule so it time releases a little bit of biocide to keep the drain clean on an HVAC condensate drain. And I've even seen people use bleach solutions to rinse out those condensate drains every so often. So perhaps maybe something like that is going on. Uh, the other question I'll ask you is, is the drain vented? In order for something to go in, something must come out. In a drain, when water goes in, we have to vent the air that's already in it out, and that's why all drains are connected to an air vent. If they're all piped together and it goes through the roof, that's called a stack vent. And there's all different types of names for that. But the simple fact is, if we're putting water in, we have to vent the air out. Now, if you've ever been at a sink and it starts to glug, that could be a sign that the drain is not vented properly. And that glug is once the pressure builds up enough of that air, it can force its way through the water that's on top of it and it can come out freeing up some space, and then some more water can go out. I actually have this issue in a bar sink that we have. It was not vented properly. It works well enough for what we need it for, but if there ever is any volume of water in the sink, it takes a while for it to drain because the plumber did not vent that drain very well. So maybe it's a venting problem. And the third question, and this is where I really think where our issue is, but we as water treaters, as professionals, we have to think of all the different scenarios because we never know what we're going to find when we go into a mechanical room. So the third question is, is the drain overwhelmed? You can only put so much water in a drain before it just simply can't handle any more water going down it. And I think based on what you said in your question, there's so many things that are getting drained to this one drain pipe. I think it's just simply getting overwhelmed. Now, if there's anybody out there that lives in an older home and you have a newer washing machine, you've experienced most likely that the washing machine will back up occasionally. That means the water will come out of the drain that's behind the washing machine going into the wall. Now, drain pipes were not sized to handle the uber-sized loads that we have on our washing machines today. And all that drain water going through that smaller pipe, it just simply can't handle it, and it backs up a little bit. Normally, you got to get a mop out to clean that up. So what do you do about something like that? Well, the simple fact is you need more drain capacity. And this is the real issue. If we do anything else besides getting more drain capacity, we are treating the symptom and not the cause. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, the customer's not going to put a new floor drain in, or in this case, three new floor drains in. So how do I handle that? And I do realize that, but it is always important for us to address what the real issue is and say, okay, well, Mr. Customer, you're not fixing the real issue. And I totally understand why we don't have the resources to dig up the plant, put new floor drains in, go offline, all that stuff. But that truly is how we fix this issue. Now, what we can do, we can explore some ways that we can treat the symptom 
But please realize it doesn't alleviate the actual issue. So many times our customers are confused because we don't have that conversation with them. We need to remind them that a chef is only as good as his or her ingredients. So how do you fix this problem? You have three different pieces of equipment, a boiler, a cooling tower, and an RO all going into the same drain and it's getting backed up. I really don't think it's clogged. There might be some debris in it. You can try to snake that out. Maybe that will help. But it just simply seems like you have so much stuff, so much volume of water going down that drain. The drain just isn't built for that volume. So if we can find other places to drain that equipment, so there's just one piece of equipment on one drain, that's the ideal situation but you don't have that luxury, it seems like. Now, some people might say, well, I can program that the particular pieces of equipment that we talk about are only going to bleed at certain times of day. But we know in boilers and cooling towers, they're always running and we bleed so we can dilute the solids in the system so we don't create a scaling situation. So if we tell it not to bleed for an extended amount of time, we could exceed what the limits are with our scale ions. So we have to consider that and that probably is not an option for you. So maybe this will work. Maybe you can install a tank so all of the three bleeds go into this tank and you size the tank so it can hold more than it needs. So the bleed goes into the top of the tank and at the bottom of the tank, it goes to the drain. And you size that drain, the piece of pipe coming out of the bottom of that tank so it will not overwhelm that drain, which means you have to have enough capacity to make sure that however long it's going to take to drain, while it's filling up that tank, it doesn't overflow. So you're going to have to do a little bit of math there. But I think that's probably your best bet to control the situation where you just have one drain and you have three pieces of equipment that are just simply overwhelming it. Having that conversation with your customer and letting them know that it is a design issue, not a water treatment issue, I think will have your customer truly understand the problem that they have, allow you to share the value that you bring into that relationship. And because we can't add more drains, which is the solution, we can put some sort of tank on it that can handle that load. And now that tank can handle all the water coming in from those three pieces of equipment and drain it out over time, not overwhelming the drain. Hey, Trace, it's Bernadette. I had a good idea for your Scaling Up podcast. What if you did something on the external weather conditions and how it affects your water treatment program, such as humidity, dry climates versus wet climates, and how you would affect what you recommend to your customers? Well, Bernadette, thank you so much for asking that question. I got to tell you, I love that question because it's very sciencey and we get to talk about some science stuff. And folks, Bernadette, if you do not know Bernadette Combs, she's a great friend of mine. She's a friend of the show. 
She is a fellow past president of the Association of Water Technology, and she is also a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. So, uh, Bernadette, thank you for that question. Let me see how well I do answering it. There's so many different routes that we can take in answering this question. So I'm going to go down one route. We'll see if it's the right route. And I'm sure you'll call me back and let me know if I went the right way or not. So the rate at which water evaporates from any surface is dependent on several factors. We've got temperature, weather conditions, humidity, wind. There's so many other factors and they all play a role in evaporation. On a hot and sunny day, evaporation is greater than that of a colder, rainy day. On a rainy day, the air that's doing the evaporation is closer to saturation. Now, what the heck does that mean? That means that the air is holding more water vapor in it already, so there's less availability for more water to go into the air. There simply isn't enough room for it. Now, this is the reason we have a fan in a cooling tower. I've trained so many water treaters over the years, and most people think at first glance that we put a fan on a cooling tower because that's how we cool the water inside a cooling tower. And folks, that's not the case. The fan is not meant to cool the water. The fan is meant to get all that saturated air out of the cooling tower so we can replace it with more or less saturated air to transfer heat into, evaporate into, put more water vapor into, and then get that air out of the system. Now, the cooling tower, just because how it's designed, it will transfer heat. But once that air becomes saturated with water vapor, there's no place for that stuff to go. So that's what the fan does. It just simply evacuates it out and replaces it with less saturated air. Did you know that? I know a lot of people don't realize that. And I have to tell you, when you understand the equipment that you treat, your job takes a whole nother level. You're now able to understand what you're doing in relation to the equipment. And I know we call ourselves water treaters. Well, folks, we are equipment treaters and we have to understand the equipment that we are treating, the equipment that the water is running through, the equipment that we are treating the water that's running through. So we make that equipment last as long as it possibly can. We make it so it runs as efficient as it possibly can. And if we can do those things, we are good water treaters. So let's look at evaporation. We now know what the fan does on a cooling tower, but let's take a deeper dive into evaporation. And folks, here's some more math. Well, it takes a thousand BTUs to evaporate one pound of water. I explained that on an earlier show. That was episode 128. But if you have not listened to that episode or it's been a while, I'm going to refresh your memory. We're going to look at water, and we all know that water has three phases. We have ice, which is its solid phase. We have water, which is its liquid phase. And we have steam, which is its gas phase. 
In order for water to undergo a phase change, we need to add energy into it. And the BTUs are the energy that we are going to add. Now, BTU stands for British Thermal Unit. There's not an American thermal unit. There's not a Turkish thermal unit. There's not a Polish thermal unit. There's not a Dutch thermal unit. It's just a British thermal unit. Don't write in. I don't know why. That's just how it is. And the BTU is the amount of energy required to raise one pound of water one degree Fahrenheit in one hour. Now, if you prefer the metric version of that, that's what a calorie is. So when we take a sip of our favorite cool, delicious beverage, ice water, we have ice in that glass and we have water in that glass. Everything in that glass is 32 degrees, but some of the 32 degrees is liquid and some of the 32 degrees is solid. Why is that? Well, we need to put more energy BTUs into the ice, the solid, to create that phase change of water, which is the liquid. So we have to put so many BTUs to do that phase change. So at 32 degrees, we have ice, and now we're gonna add 144 BTUs into it to get water to change from solid to a liquid. Now, the fancy term for this is the latent heat of fusion of ice. Now, that's a term that will impress all of your friends. Well, if they're fellow water treaters, it will. I explained this very detailed on episode 128, so I'm just going to do a high level here. Uh, on that episode, I explained how we get tonnage times three to equal the recirculation rate. So if you want to know more about that, go to episode 128. But now we're talking about the phase change of a liquid to a gas. So this is evaporation. How do we get water to want to become a gas? And this term is called the latent heat of vaporization of water. Again, a very impressive term to share with your friends. And simply what this means is how many BTUs it takes to change water from a liquid to a gas. Now, the actual number is 970 BTUs. But us as water treaters, we are very simple folk, and we round it up and we say 1,000 BTUs. So here's the warning, here's some math. The equation for evaporation is evaporation equals 0.001. Well, hey, that's one over a thousand. That's our one pound and a thousand BTUs. That's where that number comes from. Times our recirculation rate. That's episode 128. Knock yourselves out. I talk all about that times our delta T, that's simply the temperature and the water coming in at the top of the tower versus at the bottom of the tower, times the sensible loss of heat in percentage. Now, it's that sensible loss of heat that we're going to address to answer Bernadette's question. In more warm and dry climates, there will be less sensible heat loss than if we were in cooler, wetter climates. 
So when you get your evaporation number, the last thing you do on that equation is you multiply it by the amount of heat that's lost through that sensible heat in a percentage. So you would multiply that number you calculated to find out what the best representation of evaporation is based on your area. So let me give you that equation again. It's evaporation equals 0.001 times your circulation rate times the delta T times the sensible loss of heat. The warmer and drier, the higher this number will be. The colder and wetter the climate, the lower this number will be. So here in Atlanta, we use 85%. In Phoenix, Arizona, they're probably using 95 or 100%. And I've heard that people in Seattle use about 80%. So depending on which area of the world you live in, there's probably the best number for sensible loss of heat percentage that you can put into that equation and get to the closest evaporation point that you can get within this equation. Now, I am reminded by a question that people ask me all the time. They ask me, can a tower get diluted with rainwater? Now, the simple answer is yes, but how much that is depends on the size of the system, the load that the system is on, how big the openings of the cooling tower are. And I have to say, I have read way too many service reports where a technician will simply say that we are not up to the optimal concentration limits due to rain. Really? Is that true? And I'll tell you, nine times out of 10, that's a lazy technician not finding out what the problem is. Because the first thing I do when I read something like that in a service report is I walk around the system. And nine times out of 10, I normally find that the cooling tower is overflowing. Now, the technician might not have realized that because the cooling tower was on the roof and they do all their tests in the basement. Well, folks, you got to look at the equipment that you are servicing or you're not servicing that equipment. Well, in that case, definitely it was raining all week, but rain didn't have anything to do with that tower having a low conductivity. It was the fact that it was overflowing. The tower level was set too high in the tower basin. I've also found where bleed valves have been leaking. Maybe the diaphragm was fouled up with some sort of debris. Maybe it was ripped. So make sure you understand what the true cause of an issue is before you write down what the reason for that issue is. Normally, the amount of rain that affects conductivity is minimal at best. But again, it depends on the system. It depends on how much rain we're getting. So you need to know the system better than anybody else. And if you can, without a doubt, say that there's nothing else wrong with the system, it is bleeding properly, it is making up properly, then perhaps you have one of those systems that is affected by rain. 
So Bernadette, I hope that was where you were hoping I was going to go with answering that question. I do really appreciate you asking it. And if there's something else you want me to answer around that, please do not hesitate to call back and let me know. Well, our next question is not a voicemail. It was an email. Somebody went to our show notes page, they went to show ideas, and they filled out that form. That sent an email to our team, and that's how we have this question. This person asked, why don't we fill a water softener to the top with resin when we put new resin in the water softener? Well, that makes sense. There's space for more resin. Why don't we just fill that resin container up with as much resin as we can put in there? Well, the issue is, is there needs to be more than just resin in that tank. We have to account for the water that goes into that tank. Now, specifically, we need enough space to fluff up that resin when it's being backwashed. So if you're not familiar with the term backwash, Backwash is the first step in the regeneration cycle of a water softener. Now, if you're not familiar with the regeneration process of a water softener, let me try to refresh your memory on that. A water softener is used to take hardness out of the water, specifically calcium and magnesium. Our goal is not to create scale within the system or maybe making it easier for soap to lather, depending on what industry you're in. The water softener does this by exchanging sodium for the calcium and the magnesium. Now, over time, eventually, there will not be any more sodium to exchange for the calcium magnesium. So we have to regenerate the sodium back onto the resin bead. This process is called regeneration. It should also be noted that the regeneration process should not be initiated when there is absolutely no sodium left to give. We want to dial that back a little bit and make sure that we regenerate it before it starts running hard. And that's just another way of saying that it's passing calcium and magnesium. Now, once the regeneration process starts, the first step is called backwash. This is where the direction of water coming into the water softener is changed. Normally, the water comes from the top through the resin down. And what we're going to do through regeneration, through backwash, is we're going to change the direction from the bottom up. What this will do is it will fluff up the resin in the tank. What that does is it makes sure that any dirt and debris that has gotten caught in the resin now can get released from the resin and go out to the drain. The other thing that it helps with is channeling. Now, channeling is the process in which water will simply dig its way through, worm its way through the resin, essentially bypassing the resin. So now we have 
water that's not exchanging for calcium and magnesium for sodium, and it's just going straight through the resin bed through this channel. Well, we fluff it up, we get rid of all those little channels if there are any. Remember, water always goes to the path of least resistance, so if that resin bed is not packed down well and there's some weak areas in that resin bed, that water will channel each and every time. Now, this is the reason that we want to fill the resin to only 66%, not 100%, 66%, because it gives us that headroom space to fluff up the resin, and that is so important. Now, let's say for some reason you forgot to leave that headspace and you just packed that sucker full with resin. Well, in most cases, the softener will fix that problem for you. It will take exactly what it needs. And the first time it gets backwashed, it will simply take that extra resin and it will send it right to drain. Now, that's a very expensive and laborious way to get the softener to self-level. It's much easier to do a quick calculation and figure out how much resin that that container is going to hold. And now you're only putting 66% into it. To go ahead and continue with the regeneration cycle, after backwash is the brine draw. Brine draw is where we're taking highly concentrated brine, salt dissolved in water, and we send that through the resin. Now, because it is so concentrated with salt, this brine allows the resin beads to give up the calcium and magnesium that has a plus two charge for sodium that has a plus one charge. Now, if the concentration wasn't high enough, the stuff that has a plus two charge would never come off with anything that has a plus one charge. It likes the plus two better, and the only way we can encourage it to come off the resin bead is to put so much of it in there, we now make it want what it doesn't have, and it's going to exchange the sodium for the plus two stuff, which is calcium and magnesium. Now, let's talk about what happens if iron gets on the resin bead. Iron has a charge of plus three. And folks, that is not coming off with normal operation. A lot of times you have to replace the resin when this happens. There are some procedures where you can liberate some of the iron, but folks, iron fouling is the death to the resin bead. Now, after the brine draw, we then have the slow rinse. And the slow rinse gently pushes the rest of the brine through the water softener, through the resin, until there's only water left. After the slow rinse finishes, we then start the fast rinse. And the fast rinse is meant to pack that resin down so we don't have any loose spots where water can start to channel. We, of course, talked about that earlier. I read somewhere that you should backwash your water softener every week, even if the sodium is not exhausted to prevent channeling from forming. Now, I've also heard from one of my mentors that this should be every two weeks. Here's what I learned from that. When you have different water treaters out there, you are never short for different opinions. So, 
I have always sized my water softeners to regenerate about every week, and I always use a twin system on a boiler. So what is a twin system? So this is where we have one resin tank that is online and the other tank is on standby waiting for that first tank to start the regeneration process. Now, when a tank goes into regeneration, if you only have one, any water the system is calling for is gonna get bypassed from that water softener and you now have hard water going into that system. You have calcium and magnesium going into the system. If you have a twin system, whenever one system gets backwashed, the other system goes online and now you're never putting hard water into the system. And folks, if you have a boiler, Single systems are meant for houses. Single systems are made for laundries where they want to make the lather easier to occur with soaps. That's not the boiler system. The boiler system, we cannot have any hardness going into it. So it always, always, always needs a twin system in there. So to get back to the question, you want 66% of the resin of the total volume of the tank, and that allows for enough space for the resin to fluff up and get clean during the backwash period. And folks, that is called freeboard. Nation, thank you so much for sending me these questions. I love it when you do that. And again, if you're wondering how you can get your question on the air, Go to scalinguph2o.com, go to our show ideas page, and you can do what the last person did and fill out the form there. We'll get an email with your question. Or the other way is as soon as you go to scalinguph2o.com, there will be a pop-up on the right-hand side that says send voicemail. You can use your phone microphone, you can use your computer microphone, record your question, and we will get that on the air. So something else that you can help me with while you're thinking of those questions that you're going to leave for me is you can also leave a comment about this show. Comments really help get our show promoted to the next level so we can have a wider audience. That's what the podcast services use to see how popular shows are. So if you can help me with that, that would definitely help the entire Scaling Up Nation. And something else I will do to help the Scaling Up Nation is I am bringing you a brand new episode next week, a never before heard from episode of Scaling Up H2O. Until then, have a great week, folks. Scaling Up Nation, on episode 136, I invited four members of the Rising Tide Mastermind to tell the Scaling Up Nation a little bit about being a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. I asked Connor Parrish to explain what our weekly meeting looks like, and here's what he said. Every week we are are able to meet and I think it's great that we do it weekly because it keeps us accountable but every week we meet for an hour and it's very structured that hour um, we come in and we check in to see is there anything that we need to follow up on or report to the group from an accountability standpoint that we 
said we would get done by a certain date and the nice thing is we we record that and then follow up each week um, to make sure everyone is achieving what they were supposed to do if we had reading one of the things that's nice about this is we uh, have a sign reading for books that it's not too cumbersome if you don't like to read but i think there's a lot of value um, and the pace is great so we will discuss any key points from the reading there at the beginning and kind of work on some general you know housekeeping and then from there we really start to dive in uh, to what we call being in the middle which is where one of the members of the group each week comes with a problem that they want to present so this starts by that member describing the problem to the group and then indicating you know what is the goal that they want to accomplish from you know the discussion that's about to ensue so from there, everyone will then spend maybe 20 minutes or so asking clarifying questions in which everyone is doing exactly that, asking questions and the person in the middle then responds. There's no back and forth dialogue at this point, it's just clarifications. And then from there, once we feel as a group that the problem is understood and all the questions are answered, we move forward to providing recommendations. Each member of the group then you know gives them insight and some feedback based on what they heard to the person in the middle who finally then kind of compiles all of that advice and says okay this is this is what i'm taking away from the advice of the group and here's what you can expect from me as far as tackling the problem and hopefully resolving it within the next couple weeks depending on the scale of the problem well nation there's the secret sauce that is the format of our meeting and it's all about getting where we're going faster but it's also about making sure we're starting out in the right direction. When was the last time you asked yourself what was important to you? And are you doing the things that are going to make those important things happen? Those are the things that we're discussing in the Rising Tide Mastermind. And can you imagine how much more successful you would be if you had a boardroom of people helping you with your issues, letting you know what your blind spots are and holding you accountable to get the things done you said were important to you. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to see if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you. And if it's not, it's okay, but please find a group that is right for you. We are not built to do life alone.